All right, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9. This is beginning, once again, our um, final section. So we had two major sections, chapter 1, uh, 1 or 1, 2 through 3, 8, the day of destruction, where we say the, saw the judgment on the earth, judgment on Jerusalem, then judgment on the nations, then judgment on Jerusalem. And now in 3, 9 through 20, we're going to see the day of restoration. So we had the day of destruction, now the day of restoration. So there's been a lot of bad news so far, um, a lot of warnings, a lot of heavy stuff. Well, as heavy as God's words are concerning His judgment, His words of hope are just as weighty, just as wonderful. Uh, the severity that He shows towards Sinners is accompanied by sweetness of promises for his saints, for those who remain faithful to him. And he lays before them this picture of what he intends to do on their behalf uh, if they will but remain faithful to him. He's going to begin in verses 9 and 10 with the restoration of the, the nations, and then he's going to move verses 11 through 20 to the, the restoration of, of, of Jerusalem. The restoration of the nations, beginning here in chapter 3, verse 9 through 10. We're going to see here that God assured the nations that they won't escape wrath. Well, he is going to be faithful to make sure that they will not miss out on mercy either. Verse 9, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Now this, at that time that he's talking here, is back up in verse 8, therefore wait for me for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. So in the day that God brings um, judgment and wrath, in that same day, at that time, he is also going to be giving mercy. The day of the Lord is about wrath and mercy, both equally in, in, in that sense, in the sense that they both come. Verse 9, again, at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So the nations have long been known for idolatry. They've long been known for rebellion. They've long been known by perversion and immorality and, and injustice. Well, God says here, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change them. God will transform these peoples of the nations to have a pure heart that will speak forth pure, worshipful, God-glorifying truths. They were formerly famous for their blasphemy, for this blasphemous speech that magnified idols as being great, as worshiping the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. But here, all of that blasphemous speech is going to be replaced with beautiful speech that proclaims good news about God. They're also going to not only speak 
purely, but they are going to serve him with one accord. Did you notice that? The nations are going to come together under the oversight of the Lord, and they are going to serve him together. Literally, uh, the Hebrew says they're going to, um, they will be shoulder to shoulder with one accord. They're, they're, they're walking together, working together. They are unified in their service of the one true God. Imagine that. A bunch of Gentiles who were formerly idolaters and blasphemers who now are going to speak words and sing songs about the one true God and serve one another, be shoulder to shoulder in his name. That's what the church is, right? This is exactly what God does in the church. He, he fulfills this with his bride, the church. He's transforming these people to be his own. From the rivers of Cush, this is out past Egypt and the Sudan and Ethiopia. From the most distant lands, God will redeem rebels and transform them into worshipers. Now this, this should not catch them by surprise. This wasn't what God always did, but this should not catch them by surprise because this is what God said he would do. If you remember, God began the nation of Israel. How did he begin the nation of Israel? He called who? He called a dude named Abram, who lived where? In the Ur of the Chaldees. He was an idolater. God called an idolater to leave his land and forsake everything to go to a land that he would show him. And he, he promised that he would Bless him. Listen to this. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations are going to be blessed through what God is going to do through Abram. Through one of his offspring who is to come, God is going to bless all of the nations. So this shouldn't catch us by surprise here. This has always been the goal of what God was doing with Israel, was to use them and what he was doing to make his name known among the, the nations so that all of the nations would be blessed by what God did and promised and covenanted with Abraham. Isaiah foretells of the, the nations coming to enjoy the blessings of, uh, of Israel. Isaiah uh, 66, 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, which is Spain. You remember Tarshish? That's where Jonah, he's like, uh, not going to Nineveh, I'm going to go to Tarshish. Well, God says, I'm, I'm saving people out there. From Pool, those are the, the Libyans and Lud, Lydians from Asia Minor, who draw the, the bow. 
Uh, these folks from Greece to the coastlands far away, they have not heard my fame or seen my glory. They shall declare my glory among the nations. So among the nations, God is saving a people who are going to declare his glory. They shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. The picture here is in this restored Jerusalem that is to come. You're going to have people from all the nations bringing their glory in. If you were here last Sunday when we were working through Revelation chapter 21 and the new city, you see it's filled with the nations coming in with their glory. This is exactly what Isaiah foretold. It's what Zephaniah foretells here, that you've got the nations who are coming and bringing the, the true believers in, and they are coming to worship this one true God. Well, this is the restoration of, of, of the nations. They are coming just as God intended to with the forming of Israel so that they could enjoy the blessing promised to Abraham. Well, now in verses 11 down through 20, we're going to see God's restoration uh, continue to uh, be declared with the restoration of, of the, the great Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. God's plan is to bring restored Israel into the land of promise. We see the redemption of the nation, verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. There's two senses in which God is going to deal with shame forevermore. So God says, first, let's, let's deal with this on an individual level, and then we're going to deal with it on a corporate level. God will remember your sins no more. This is the covenant promise that God made with his people, prophesied by Jeremiah, that Jesus himself, through the shedding of his blood, the giving of his body, is the, the initiation of a new covenant. We are now under the new covenant. In that, God says, I remember your sins no more which means he does not hold us accountable for what we've done anymore if we have turned from our sin and trusted in Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No shame. And you've got to remember this is really important because Satan is a historian. He's always going to be blackmailing you with reminders of where you have been and what you have done and all the reasons that you are not worthy to be able to enter into the presence of the king. But Jesus shed his blood to shut the devil up and to give him no authority over you. And the Lord says here, your shame, no more. There's no more shame on that day because of the deeds that you have done when you rebelled against me. The cross paid them in full. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 speaks about all of the debt that we owed God because of, of our breaking of the law. It's nailed to the cross. So when you feel shame for your sins, if you are in Christ, what you need to do is you need to look to the cross and know that it was paid in full. Jesus was hung naked, shamed on the cross so that you would not have to bear shame. Now, I understand there's haunting memories that all of us will wrestle with, but this is where you've got to know that that's not who you are or what defines you any longer if you are in Christ. Because you have been clothed, you have been covered now in the righteousness of Christ. 
This is what God does for his people. So you do not have to be ashamed any longer. So this, this is true individually for us, but it's also true corporately. Because you have the faithful remnant here who's hearing these words while they're standing in the midst of all of the idolaters who are bearing their same name. And what God does and he promises to do here is that I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Meaning God is going to judge all of those who claim his name but are not his own. They will be removed and what will remain are the true remnant, the faithful ones. So that whether it be individually or corporately, we will not be put to shame any longer because God will have dealt with sin once and for all, either by judging sinners fully and finally, being that sacrifice, or because we've hid under the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, who is the sacrifice in our place. Shame is paid for in full. It's gone. No more. That's good news. So part of the hope here is that we will be a purified people. We'll be a purified people. He's going to make us like himself. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Cam, it was you that noticed that, wasn't it? That's the same words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine. I am gentle and lowly. Jesus uses the same words. What God does when he purifies us is he makes us like Jesus. This is the hope of believers, that when Christ returns, that we will be made like him. Listen to this from 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's a day coming when we will be fully like him, but now in these days when we wait, whether it's in the days of Zephaniah or in our day as we await the return of Christ, we are being purified, being made like Jesus, gentle and lowly, by beholding him by faith and hearing texts like this and asking God to make our heart to be set upon them so that we live our lives and interact with temptation in light of Christ's return so we don't give in to it. It fuels holiness. This is the focus of God's people. He's laying this before them. Verse 12, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, and they are safe. There's safety in the name of the Lord. Notice here, what, what does this sound like, this seek refuge in the name of the Lord? Where have we heard this before? Chapter 2, verse 3, exactly right. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. It's that same Zephaniah sort of language here. Taking refuge in the Lord. 
hiding in His name. Be hidden there. Verse 15, or verse 13, sorry. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. This is going to be a land where there's truth-telling forevermore. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They won't be truth-twisters anymore. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. So not only will they be a pure people, but here they will be a peaceful people. Now, let me go ahead and say this. There's an already not tension that I think we have to feel. This is brought to pass, the already, when Israel is restored back into the land and God sends Messiah for them and Jesus is on the earth and, and then he, he dies, he rises, he gives his spirit and now his people, we know this already now, but there is a day coming when that is not yet that we will know it in full. So there's an experience we have now in the kingdom of God in this stage of it that will be full and final in the final stage of the kingdom of God. So they are a purified people who are transformed to be like him. They are a peace-given people who, who graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. What does that remind you of? Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. All of these images that the Lord's given all the way through his word, they're just wrapped back up into these promises that he's laying before his people here. It'll be a purified people and a, pe uh, a peace-given people. They'll also be a singing, joyful people. Verse 14 Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, these are going to be a people who are marked by joy, who are marked by singing because of what the Lord has done for them. The Lord said he would take care of us, and he did. So we sing. Verse 15, they're going to be a forgiven people. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you and has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. The Lord is with them. All right, so this, when God restores them, he restores them in such a way that their sins will not be held against them any longer. They are forgiven, they are protected, and God's presence is among them. Again, seen in the coming of Christ and in the giving of the Spirit and then in his soon return when he takes us to be with him forevermore. This is what the whole pinnacle of the book of Revelation is, chapter 22, verse 4, and we will see his face. He'll be in our midst and we'll be with him. None will make us afraid because he is with us. You shall never, never again fear evil. Never again fear evil. No evil left done away with. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things passed away, Revelation 21 says. That's this land that is coming that we now know by faith. So there's a sense in which a believer now can hear that and say, 
I know what that means, but I don't experience that. I have that, but I don't experience it fully. There's a sense in which we do not fear because Jesus has defeated death on our behalf through the resurrection. So we don't need to fear. Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. There's a sense in which we're liberated from fear now, but there's another sense in which one day we'll be liberated from it, liberated from it completely because it'll be no more. There's a tension here for us to feel. Did I think we have an advantage that the first hearers of Zephaniah wouldn't? They would have just expected that to come at some point fully and finally. We can see that there's, there's like a mountaintop and then there's another mountaintop. And we're in between where we have it and we shall have it in full one day soon. So then we have his presence. We are purified. We have his peace. We have singing. We have joy. We're forgiven. We're protected. We have his presence. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let, your hands, uh, let not your hands grow weak. Verse 17, one of the most unfathomable verses in the whole Bible. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I always feel like that's got to be a misprint. <laughs> like I, what you mean, Lord, <laughs> uh, is that uh, we'll be rejoicing before you with gladness, right? And uh, that, that we are just going to be, you know, enraptured with your love. And that, listen, we're, we're going to sing to you. And he's like, <laughs> I, you will sing to me. But the Lord, it's like the Lord takes his bride and he says, I've written a song for you and I'm going to sing over you because you are precious to me. Which if you think about the bride that he's talking about, I mean, if you know yourself, if you know the, the people of God, hear what the last thing he should do is sing over us, is take pleasure in us. I mean, we've been so unfaithful. So often we've strayed in heart and mind and motive and deed. So often we've done what we should not have done. So often we left undone what we should have done. And yet he says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. You're forgiven and you are mine and I love you. The Lord Jesus paid for all of that on the cross. And he sealed it through his resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. And you are mine. And I'm going to exalt over you because I love you. And I'm going to sing over you because in some sense that I cannot capture, God can't wait to be with us. He wants us. So however rejected and alone you feel, just know there's a day that, that has an expiration date on it where the Lord will be with us and love us with a love that never ends. 
tender, gentle love. He says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. You wanted to be able to, to worship, but you couldn't because it's unclean or whatever. Like here, no longer. You'll be able to rejoice. Behold, at that time I will deal with all of your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will charge, I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. You ever feel lame or outcast? Hate how you look, hate your body, hate where you've been, what you've done. Do you always get the short end of the stick? Do things just never work out for you? Does it feel like that? However shaming and debilitating and lonely that can feel, the Lord says, I don't care how lame you are, how outcast you may feel, you're mine, and I love you, and I will never let you go. None can snatch you out of my hand. And I'm going to turn that shame into a song. And we're going to sing forevermore about our love. You can sing to me. There's plenty of that in Revelation. And I'm going to sing to you here in Zephaniah. At that time, I will bring you in. So he heals them, right? At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord. In the new heavens and the new earth, what God does is He fills a new heaven and new earth with His people and Him with them to where they are exalted. And He says, this is my bride. And He enjoys her and they enjoy Him in a way that is really unfathomable but is our great hope. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 7 in conclusion, then I'll take questions, but this is a scene of, of that day to come with the nations together before the Lord singing, and we don't see it, but Him singing back. This is John after seeing the, the full number of the people of God sealed, 144,000 representing all of God's people, sealed by the Spirit. After that happens, after this, I looked and behold, Revelation 7, 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice their, all of their shameful deeds washed away. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. And they shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you hear all of that Zephaniah 3 language? here in this final scene. It's all intended to point us toward that day when we might be with Jesus. He is the hope of God's people, whether it be in this day or Zephaniah's day. All of these words about judgment and restoration are intended to point us to hope in Him and to love Him as He is worthy. And that is the book of Zephaniah. What questions would you have about this final section, the book of Zephaniah? Hi, I'm Sue. Hey, Sue. I am wondering if the people then, when he said, you know, repent, come back to the Lord, that you'd mentioned earlier that their bodies wouldn't be saved because Babylonia was just going to strike them all down. But how did the people of that time, because Jesus hadn't come yet, how did they repent and then not see any of this come to fruition? I mean, can you... Great question. So how can people who received this word in Zephaniah's day, which is pre-Jesus, how could they see any fulfillment in what God promised them here? Great question. Hebrews 11 answers that. When you read Hebrews 11, it says, all of these died in faith without receiving the promises, right? All of Hebrews 11, says that in verse, uh, wherever it is, uh, all these uh, died in faith uh, without receiving the promises. Um, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who make the, or speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, there would have been opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then the whole Hebrews 11 moves up to the final part where it says, it lists all the names of all the people who have died in faith, Right? who some of them saw, some of them shut mouths of lions, others got eaten by lions, right? Well, in verse 39, it says, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Nobody has received everything that God has promised yet. So every believer from, who has died in faith from Abel, all the way through Zephaniah's day, all the way up to the last believer who just now died. Their bodies go into the ground. Their spirits go to be in heaven with the Lord, absent from the body's present with the Lord. 
but they do not inherit the final bit of the promises. So in one sense, the way I've described it often is it's like a tailgate in glory where everybody is there, but the new heaven and new earth has not come yet. And it says here that the people who have died in faith, they are not going to be made perfect until everybody gets there. So when the last believer dies, they come into glory and everybody like, about time, let's go, right? And then Jesus comes back and takes those who are still alive with him and that is the return of Christ. So every believer has different uh, amounts of understanding of what that looks like. Um, and yeah, they would have had faith in whatever revelation the Lord had given them. Um, and he pointed them toward promises and they clung to the promises. And whether they were taken down by a sword in Babylon or whether they lived there through there like Daniel, um, either way, they can trust the Lord. And in the end, the Lord will make it all right, which to us, we're like, that seems pretty final. You like die and don't go to get what God promised. The Lord's like, I understand, but you don't see things like I do. Because one day when I fix it all, you'll be like, oh, that was better in a way that right now we have to take by faith. Does that make sense? That's about as good as I can do. Good question. I'm Karen. Hi, Karen. Hi. Do you think in heaven, like I cannot conceive of why God would sing to me or why God would forgive me or why God has set it up the way he set it up so that it's swimming upstream the whole time. But do you think in heaven we'll know the mind of God and understand him in a way that just makes us kind of fall on our face. You know what I mean? Yeah, great question. The question is, will we in glory, in some sense, have the mind of God that helps us to be able to comprehend how all of this fits together? I haven't been there yet, so I'm not fully certain exactly how it will work out. But, you know, uh, Romans chapter 8 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. First Corinthians says, now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face, right? We know in part now, we know in full then. I can assure us of this, that we will know everything we need to know to worship God rightly. And one of the things we know about our God is there's not one thing he's ever wasted. Like he says he catches every tear in a bottle. He says he writes down everything that makes you toss at night in his book. If, he, if he's that attentive to detail, that he knows when the hair falls from one of his children's head, when he knows when a bird that he created falls to the ground, if he knows all of that, if he has that much attention to detail, it only seems that, yeah, glory will be some sort of presentation of his masterful weaving together of how every second that ever happened during time in history mattered and moved toward this great tapestry of, of glory. So I'll give you an illustration of how I'd imagine this is. Again, this is all speculation, but it's encouraging me, so I'll try. Um, I was in Turkey a number of years ago, and we were in the, um, we were in the marketplace, and there was, um, there was a lady who was putting a, doing a rug. I don't even know what you call it not cross-stitching or sewing, whatever, what is it? weaving, thank you, sorry, uh, weaving a rug, that's why I would not do well at this, but anyway, she's weaving a rug, 
And from where I'm standing, it was, it just wasn't like, all right, maybe it's just, you know, maybe it's a Turkish thing. I don't get it, but like it was not real pretty, you know. It was just all these loose ends and things that were kind of tied all over the place. And then she got done and she stepped back and then she went like this and turned it. And now you see this incredible piece of art that just, it all worked. But I saw the other side of it with all of the the tied off pieces and it just didn't make any sense to me. But in her mind, she knew exactly what she was doing. And when she turned it around, we said, oh, that's amazing. I don't know how I'll get that on a plane, but I would buy it if I could. You know, like that's like you want it, right? So in the same way, I trust that in the same way, Joseph, at the end of his life, when he could look back and he said, all the things you intended for evil, God meant for good. Like he could see it. We don't always get that vantage point in this life. Sometimes we do, a little bit. It seems reasonable to assume that someday the Lord would give us eyes to see everything we would need to to be able to worship him rightly. Great question. Hi, um, I'm Becca, and my question kind of relates to what Caroline asked. I'm trying to think of how all of this relates to our society nowadays. Um, I'm specifically thinking on the dynamics of, um, you know, seek God and you will, he will bless you. And if you turn away from him, there will be judgment and destruction. Um, obviously, we talked about this. There is a, an eternal way in which that happens um, with in heaven being eternally present with God or eternally away from God in hell. But there is also a very... Um, historical present way which that happened to Jerusalem, right, that was taken captive um, by the other nations. Um, my question is, is there a correlation in which that happens to us nowadays in seeking God and we'll be blessed now and not, um, there'll be destruction now, both um, in a personal way, but also as a society, and how does that, like, not in a way that is a prosperity gospel, right? You do all the right things and you get, you know, yeah. blessings from God. But, yeah, yeah. How, how does that relate to us? Great question. Um, so how do we understand the correlation between what we see happening with Zephaniah in a day where if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. How does that sort of um, relationship, how does that work now for us, both as believers and in society? Is that basically it? Okay, yeah. Well, this is where you have to understand that we're not under the same covenant that they were under. They were under the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was the way that they get to enjoy the Abrahamic covenant, which was that if you obey, you will be blessed and stay in the land and enjoy everything that God gives. If you disobey, you're going to be cursed and kicked out of the land. So it was, it was, that was a covenant that God made with the nation of Israel distinctly for them that was intended to help them enjoy the, the, the Abrahamic covenant. Well, when Jesus comes, he does not come to a, abolish the law or the prophets, but he comes to fulfill them. That includes fulfilling all of the pictures that these covenants uh, anticipate. So we are no longer under the Mosaic covenant. Jesus obeyed the law fully um, so that we can be blessed and then he was cursed in all the ways that we should have been cursed. That's what happens on the cross. Galatians says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed 
He took all of the cursing that the Mosaic Covenant, the people of God, deserved upon himself, took it into the grave, rose from the dead, and now, because of what, out of the, the wealth of who he is in his obedience, we are now showered with the blessing of being in him. This is why Ephesians starts with all the spiritual blessings that we receive because we're in Christ. We receive that. So we are blessed in that sense. So the Lord does not relate to us in the same way that he did there. Obedience does either, our, our actions are either pleasing or displeasing to the Lord. So our relationship with, the God, with God is set. Our fellowship with him um, ebbs and flows based upon our, our obedience, right? So if we are pleasing to him through obedience, um, yeah, we, we abide, we're filled with the Spirit, we enjoy the love, joy, peace, patience, kind of all, all is produced in us, right? Um, if we disobey, we grieve the Spirit, and we should, we should repent so that our fellowship can be restored. So individually, we should understand ourselves as not being under the Mosaic Covenant. We are not um, in danger of God kicking us out of the land, if you will, um, in, in the same sort of way, because the promises now are not about the land. It's now a kingdom in which Christ is the head, and it's a spiritual kingdom that we're in. So we are in the, we're in the land already, if you will, and it's foreshadowing the day when we will go into the land fully and finally. So that's not up for grabs if you're a believer. You're sealed into that. Um, as a society, God has not made the sort of covenant promises that he made with Israel with other nations. So nations should not look to other gods, but should repent and look to the one true God and come under his care under the new covenant through Jesus. Um, certainly, uh, God measures the, the wickedness of, of civilizations and nations and judges them accordingly. That's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened to the land of Canaan. So, in some sense, uh, God is, well, in every sense, God's fully aware of what's going on with them. We don't get much insight into what the level of disobedience is that a place needs to get to before he wipes them off the map and allows another nation to take over. We don't get much insight into that. And I think in, for, for us as believers, so like when I think about where God's placed us, like I hope America does well um, in a way that's righteous and good that, that would honor the Lord. But like I don't, as a Christian, I'm first and foremost to be concerned about my walk with the Lord and our church's walk with the Lord. Are we, in this expression of God's kingdom, obeying his word in a way that, that glorifies him and serves as a light among the nations? And then when we scatter, we should try to influence, try and do good to the city as um, Israel was commanded in Babylon and Jeremiah was commanded to do good to the city. So we should do good to the city and we should bless it in every way that, that we can. But it's not in the same sort of one-to-one -one correlation as, as Israel doing good in their, in their uh, nation. Does that make sense? That was rambly, but I tried to cover all the bases. So I don't know if that helped or answered your question, but if not, you at least got a lot of information. There you go. So anybody else have any questions? There you go. Here's one here. Hello again. Hello again. Uh, I just have a 
question in regards to verses 9 through 20. It's kind of a, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit, Gary, about how to study the Bible better when these types of passages come out um, in the prophets especially. I just read the, the minor prophets recently, and I just came across a lot of these near fulfillment passages, Jesus fulfillment passages, and uh, heaven passages, which is like the day of the Lord fulfillment. So, and I, and I had a particularly difficult time kind of discriminating between those three types of uh, prophecies. Is, so is there any tips you can give us uh, to, to be able to discriminate between those three types of fulfillment? Yeah, so if we're trying to distinguish about how, how are we seeing this fulfilled, is it near or far, um, I think we want to assume there's got to be some initial near fulfillment. Always assume that, unless there's a real clue to the fact that there's not. So I think as we read through uh, Zephaniah, we should be assuming that these words of judgment are not just about like the second coming. So it would be an, yeah, uh, an inappropriate jump to Jesus by saying, well, he's just talking about Christ coming here. No, he's talking about historical Babylon is coming, right? And as they're going to be taken away, they should know that they're going to be restored back to the land, which did happen. They came back to the land. Um, but as they came back to the land, even then it wasn't final with what they were going to do. God's going to do even more than that. Part of the way that we know that's true is how so much of this language is echoed later, particularly in the book of Revelation. I mean, just one of the passages we just read through. I, I quoted it several times. You can hear the echoes and the anticipation of the same sort of things that we see here. So what I want to do is I'm reading through a prophet is I want to read it and say, okay, first, how was that fulfilled then? Like, so, you know, the, the destruction of Nineveh, like we looked it up and found out, yeah, they were destroyed by, um, by the Babylonians and the Medes in 612. Like, I wanted to find out where are those fulfillments as best as possible. And then ones that I'm unsure about, that's where I'm going to get some help maybe for some commentators and read and, and try and, and say, okay, does anybody have any insight here on some things that I'm missing? Um, but, yeah, I think most prophecies are going to have a near and far fulfillment in some way, shape, or form. All right, thanks. Yeah. Any other questions about Zephaniah? Well, I hope this has been encouraging for you, particularly this last part. It's a wonderful word, a hopeful word. Um, may the Lord give us grace to hope in it. Uh, Lord willing, tomorrow morning, I'll be back here. If you will, that'd be great. If not, it's cool too. But uh, I will be in the book of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. And um, yep, that'll be where we'll start here at 830. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would give us hearts that hope in this final restoration, this day that is, that is to come in which we will um, have you sing over us. Lord, we don't know what to do with that, but we pray that you would help us to believe it and to hope in it and to delight in it and to treasure these sweet promises and to know there's no other God like you. Lord, would you guard us from temptation to the foolish idols that offer uh, escapes from you. Lord, help us. Help us to look to you, to love you, to follow you until we see you face to face. In the name of Jesus, amen.